Slow it. This meeting is being recorded. Indeed it is. Today is Sunday, August 7th, 2022. You are watching or listening to another edition of Forward Maryland. I'm Bill Woodcock. And I'm Steve Hunt. Happy Sunday. Happy August. We are, both, we are both reporting to you live or actually recorded from, from, from undisclosed locations in Columbia, Maryland. And Steve, for some reason, I seem to have my radio voice on today. Why the hell is that? I don't know, but it's smooth like butter. <laughs> it must be jelly because jam don't shake like that. <laughs> and so without any further ado... Uh, we are both primed, rested, and ready. Uh, Steve, and, Steve and I have both come back from our respective vacations. We have traveled the highways and byways, gone into parts unknown, and came out unscathed. And uh, we are back now to report on the elections in the state of Maryland. Of course, they were extended play 12-inch uh, edition elections, uh, having the... Uh, the outcomes of the elections really weren't even known until just this past weekend in some cases. Uh, and yeah. certainly good in morning. one of the cases in yeah, which- Good morning, Montgomery County. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we see you in Montgomery County. We're gonna talk about you in a minute. Y'all flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So who are you, Lindsey Graham, Montgomery County? We don't know. So you're, you're every which way but loose. Oh, by the way, Fred the Orangutan was awesome. Do you remember Every Which Way But Loose, Steve? What a great flick that was. Every Which Way But Loose, Every Which Way You Can. I mean, yes. it, was Clint, it was Clint coming off of the Spaghetti Westerns and, uh, you know, having a little uh, comedic uh, chops there. Getting a little comedic. That, that was maybe a golden time of movies. In fact, today's New York Times talks about the summer of 82 and the great science fiction movies that came out. E.T., Alien, uh, I think Alien, oh no, E.T., Tron, The Thing, and Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Ah, nice. You know, awesome, awesome year for, for summer movies. Anyway, yeah. we are not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about the primary elections. And uh, as they were our summer blockbuster in Maryland politics, that was such a weak segue. By the way, while we're talking about Maryland politics... Well, I'd like to always thank the proprietor and purveyor and leader of now called Everybody's Maryland Politics on Facebook, Barry O'Connell. We cannot always, we cannot continue to forget Barry O'Connell. We must always recognize him. Barry, here's to you. Anyway, uh, the first race is the governor's primary which produced some interesting results on both sides. Um, not surprising results, but first off, Steve, Democrat, the Democratic primary, uh, Wes Moore emerged victorious over Tom Perez finishing second. I think surprisingly, uh, Peter Francho, the state controller, finished third. Um, what do you make of this result? Well, you, you know, Bill, the, the equal story to all of this was that um, you, you made your blockbuster reference. Uh, the turnout was not a blockbuster in the great state of Maryland. The last number I saw, it was really more like you know 2018 numbers, pretty low turnout. I think under 30% in terms of you know registered voters that voted, much less 
eligible. So that, that's another story for another day, but certainly should be a bigger one in a state that is very easy to vote. You and I both have vacations and we were able to vote because of the ease that you can do that. But off the soapbox there, you know, low turnout election, I thought would have favored Peter Francho because those tend to be, you know, the electorate tends to be older, whiter, a little more to the moderate slash conservative, depending on how you want to look at it from the D or R standpoint. I, I figured that was in his wheelhouse. And he not only lost, but he lost by a significant amount. And I, I think me personally, and I know that you, me, Rich Elliott, Lynn Fox, I mean, everybody who we talked to had Francho winning this thing at the end of the day. I, I think I may have missed the appetite on the part of the people of Maryland to turn the page and move forward with new leadership because uh, that's the only explanation I can have with that type of electorate and the turnout. And if you think about it just very quickly, you know, if you look at the last 20 years, the dominant names in the great state of Maryland have been, you know, Francho, at least on the Democratic side, um, Francho, O'Malley, Bush, Miller, or the Mikes, as we like to call them. And I think this officially moves us forward from that age. You know, the Mikes obviously are no longer with us. Um, you know, Francho is effectively retired, and we'll get to the O'Malley name in a minute, but I think it is retired as a force in our great state. And now you're looking at new leadership. It'll be, you know, uh, Moore and Miller and Learman and, and you know, county executives like Ball and Ozalewski and also Brooks. And, you know, you already have Ferguson and Jones down in Annapolis. And, you know, I can go deeper into delegates and senators. I won't go there. But to me, it just seemed to be a sign that Maryland is ready to move forward with new people at the top. Um, and I ain't mad at you, Maryland, because we could use some of that in the Democratic caucus in D.C. So, that, that was my thought. Surprised the result considered the electorate. Um, but uh, I think it represents something bigger than just a single primary election. Uh, Bill, what do you got? Well, I, I'm going to go with you on the, on the idea of, uh, of new faces in Maryland. Um, you know, I, I think the Moore campaign was able to tap into that. I think you can see evidence up and down the ballot where if a new face ran a good campaign, they got some strong consideration. You know, I'm thinking in even as local a race as our little old home district of 13, uh, where Amy Brooks, a former guest on this podcast, came within about a thousand votes of knocking off one of the Team 13 um, members in the House of Delegates race, closest by far that any challenger had ever come to uh, one of the Team 13 candidates. And, um, you know, we also, um, you know, look at one of the county council races in Howard County in District 4, where um, a gentleman, Jansen Evelyn, almost won, uh, almost won a, a, a county council seat uh, primary. So there certainly are, um, there certainly is that sentiment. Uh, I think in a future podcast, we'll be talking, you know, very, very recent, in, in the very near future, we'll be talking about that sentiment for newness, how it, how it relates on the federal level, uh, maybe even on the presidential level. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I think it certainly is alive and well in Maryland. And I think this is why maybe voters, you know, look past um, Tom Perez and Peter Francho. Uh, who are both leaders from bygone days in the Democratic Party and are going for a, and went towards West Moore. Also, it speaks quite well to uh, how well the Moore campaign um, was organized. Um, 
you know, the, 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 I believe that the support of so much of the House of Delegates and, and confederally and uh, the General Assembly and congressional leadership um, was, was uh, an incredible boost to the Moore campaign. Uh, and also, but also he left no stone unturned. I mean, he also appealed to, to uh, the electorate as a fresh face and as somebody who can, you know, but as a fresh face with connections who could get things done. Um, you know, the, the temptation is there to draw uh, comparisons between Westmore and Ben Jealous, the 2018 Democratic gubernatorial nominee, uh, because there are both new candidates, both in their first run for elective office, also both happen to be African-American men, you know, running to be the first African-American governor in the state of Maryland. I'm not sure the comparison is totally apt. Um, the jealous campaigns seem to be too narrow banded, uh, seem to be, you know, almost, you know, we're going to run for the Democratic nomination in spite of all y'all. Uh, and I think that came through because he could not build a bigger coalition to beat Larry Hogan in the right. fall. Um, the Moore campaign does not seem to do that. Uh, I still have some concerns about if and when, and I think it'll be more when Westmore is elected governor, how much there will really be change and how much there will really be a, a true transition of leadership in Maryland. Um, but he definitely seems to be running a bigger tent campaign, and I think that bodes well for success in the fall. Well, let me just add this, Bill, and, and you had a great point there, and, and and that's why I, and I think you also talked about the desire on you know in terms of the people, well, Democratic voters. We won't throw the whole state in yet, but it, certainly the Democratic electorate for new faces. It was not a desire for new ideology. It was not desire for new approach or way of doing business or whatever you want to call it. And and that's a great comparison between the jealous campaign and, and the Moore campaign. You know, if you think about this race, Moore really was the insider in terms of the state of Maryland and Francho was the outsider. And, and to a certain extent, so was Perez. Uh, whereas jealous was a total outsider. He was fresh out of the, you know, Bernie Sanders camp, uh, the R revolution camp, you know, they, the jealous team was really looking to turn things totally upside down and go in a direction that was totally different from where we had been or we're looking to go. So uh, I can't say it any other way, but he scared people with what a jealous, you know, administration might look like. What's more is comfort food. I mean, you know, you bring in Oprah and, 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 and some of the other things, you've got all the electives behind you. You are an insider. I don't care if it's your first campaign or your 20th. He's an inside guy. So you're right. I don't know that there's going to be much of a difference in how we see things go legislatively or, or otherwise in the state of Maryland. It's just people wanted a new face leading that. They, I don't know that there was a desire to change how we go about our business in Maryland, just who takes us there. So I think it's a great right. point between the two campaigns. Right. And, 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 and I'll end, I'll wind up on this. I was looking at my social media feed uh, just now and, and there's a picture of a, of a state Senate candidate from the Lower Eastern Shore. And who's she with? Westmore. You know, mm -hmm. he's everywhere. You know, he, yeah. so again, he's, he's certainly learning those lessons 
not running as a narrow band candidate, running as somebody who can appeal in a, a more 24 jurisdiction strategy. And right, right. he's going to need that broad-based appeal because in the Republican primary, I said there would be a few we told you so's. Well, guess what? We told you so. Dan Cox um, kind of knocked Kelly Schultz around a little bit in the primary, and it really wasn't even all that close. Yeah. It was, what, about like 57 to, to low 40, about high 50s to low 40s, um, maybe yeah. if that. Um, Steve, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, and he's already running, you know, hard right. You know, he's doing the typical, you know, Trump endorsed candidate spiel of just doubling and tripling down on everything. Um, his, his campaign and his lieutenant governor's campaign are, um, blocking noted, uh, Annapolis reporters from their social media feeds. So as they can't, so as not to be able to report on them, as if that's going to stop anybody. Uh, they're already running with this great disdain of all things Maryland, and I, I just don't see how this is going to work out. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about you know the the Dundalk Arbutus, you know, um, you know maybe uh, you know Baltimore, you know that ring around the Beltway of uh, of voters in Baltimore County who, you know, they may not love Westmore for one reason or another, um, but I also can't believe that all of these people, many of whom are still registered Democrats, are, are going to just really love the Dan Cox shtick after, you know, after all of these years of the Trump brand. And there is some polling evidence out there, although not necessarily in Maryland, to suggest that the January 6th Trump brand nonsense is starting to wear thin even on republican voters um you know steve what do you think about the cox win and do you think that um you know he's riding a wave that's already crested um well first of all i don't even think he's riding a wave um he he's riding a feeling within a certain segment of the republican party that in a low turnout election drives the train. I don't, I, Wave would be giving him way too much credit. Um, and and here's, the, here's the thing about Republicans winning in Maryland statewide, and certainly even locally, you know, we saw that, in, you see that here in Howard County, you have to draw it inside straight, as they say in poker. Ehrlich did, Hogan did twice. It's a combination of a Democratic nominee that you can hammer as being either radical, too far to the left, you know, pick a term, any term, but basically somebody that scares people and a Republican that can stand up and say, they can present themselves in such a way that Marylanders say to themselves, this person's okay. Uh, you know, this Democrat is so radical and, and, or the case of Anthony Brown, you know, you had O'Malley fatigue, I believe that you could say, I really don't want this person. I need an excuse to vote for the Republican and Hogan and Ehrlich to their credit, both gave Maryland voters an excuse. They, they were like, well, you know, the whole thing won't fall apart with these guys and these, th these Democratic nominees can't deal with them. That's not going on here. You have Wes Moore, who people will look at and say, you know, he ain't been jealous. You know, he's not carrying the O'Malley stain. He's not carrying the Kennedy stain. You know, he's Wes Moore. You know, you talk to him, you like him. Meanwhile, you have, you know, Mr. I chartered buses on January 6th. And oh, by the way, 
season two of the January 6th committee hearings has been green-lighted, <laughs> and it's coming to a, a station near you in the fall, so that ain't going away. And the, the telltale sign of what you can think of a candidate is, what do people down ballot have to say? You, you said Westmore's been everywhere. He was on the Eastern Shore. There was a big soiree in Silver Spring. There was another one, you know, yesterday here in Howard County. And people, county, county, county council members, executives, who you name them, they have no problem standing next to Westmore. Look at what's happening on the Republican side. Barry Glassman has already disavowed him. Larry Hogan, I guess, is going to vote for his dad or Ronald Reagan again. Who knows what the hell he's going to do. Um, Kelly Schultz is already declaring Maryland a single-party state and lamenting it. Basically, she's writing the guy off. Alan Kilman, the same thing. Um, if you think you're going to see Alan Kilman walking next to Dan Cox at the Howard County Fair, don't hold your breath. So you've got Democrats, to your point, even on the Eastern Shore, saying, I will stand next to this guy. And Republicans are like, I'm just trying to save my own butt because this guy's going down. <laughs> so to me, that's the tell. That's and that's what I think. And, and and I just there's no inside straight to be pulled here because Dan Cox isn't even going to try to pivot. He's going to run as who he is. And that's going to be that. And I don't think it's going to work in Maryland. He, he's on the ballot. And as the saying goes, so you're telling me there's a chance. And I would exactly. put that chance at around 10 to 15 percent right now. Yeah, um, I, I don't see. There being now, now it's not like the Republican establishment is totally against Cox. I mean, you mentioned Alan Kittleman there, and I believe that that what you just described is more Kittleman looking at a potentially winnable race for Howard County Executive and right. saying, I don't want to be torn, you know, thrown in with that because he remembers the campaign four years ago and, and Calvin Ball, you know, effectively tied uh, Kittleman to Trump. So, right. so, I mean, there's, you know, he, he, Alan doesn't want to run that playbook again because that didn't work yeah, out yeah. so well. However, you do have people like the former uh, Republican nominee for governor twice, Ellen Sauerbrey, former yeah. Republican governor Bob Ehrlich, uh, yeah. basically now leading the Cox campaign in the state yeah. of Maryland. You know, a whole lot of present and former Republican elected officials, um, you know, standing, you know, standing besides this guy. You also have another Republican nominee, Michael Perutka, the Attorney General nominee, oh. who oh uh, was a former Anne Arundel County Council member and member of the Southern Party for yeah. a while, which believed in, yeah. which basically believes in reforming the CSA. Uh, and by that, I don't mean community-sponsored agriculture. I mean the Confederate <laughs> States of America. Yeah, and, he might be the and, one of the bunch. Yeah, and and so <laughs> and so you certainly have a bunch of fruits and nuts mingling yeah. in there with the flakes and making yeah. a cereal of disaster. Now let's see that if you know. But however, there are you know there's some milk in that cereal, which is the garlics. And the sour braise and 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 all of you know all of that ilk. So you know, um, I give them credit because if they're going to go down, they're going to go down together, and they're but they're also going to make a whole lot of noise, 
And I think if this election doesn't prove anything else, it will show how, um, you know, how, if at all, the state of Maryland is divided. Um, You know, I think it's a gut check in terms of the character and disposition of the state of Maryland. One of the greatest books I've ever read was a book about, it's about 40 years old, but I would still recommend it reading. It's still recommended reading uh, called Maryland, a Middle Temperament. And it was a history of the state from 1634 to 1984. And Maryland has always been that that middle ground between the, the liberal industrial Northeast and the more conservative states rights, agrarian South, um, this will be this will be maybe more so than in any time I can think of, possibly that first Paris Glendening Sourbray election in 98, uh, a gut check as to what the character of the state really is. Because you bring up a great point. You know, Westmore doesn't come across as out of touch like Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, doesn't come across as a carpetbagger like, um, you know, uh, 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 Ben Jealous, doesn't come across as just kind of a goof like Anthony Brown did in in his 2014 campaign. Uh, He comes across and presents himself uh, as an earnest, thoughtful, smart, capable, energetic, you know, executive, and, um, you know, um, I don't, you know, and that's going to be be met on the debate stage and in forums and everywhere with a whole lot of anger. And how much will Marylanders fall for that will really tell us about our state's character. Yeah, you're right. And and I will say this, Bill, even if more wins, that's a close election, I still think that's not a good sign. No, no. If more if more is not posting up a double digit win in a state like Maryland where Democrats outnumber Republicans by a lot, I think your point is very well taken. If it's like a, a five pointer or something like that, that still to me raises a red flag. So I think you're absolutely right about what this says about our state. A- anything less than 60 40 is is would, as a more win would would say many bad things about and and disturbing things as we go forward through the rest of this decade for the state of maryland while 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 we while we uh while i just brought up the name of michael perutka i have no intention of talking about him as we discuss the attorney general's race because the attorney generals and controllers races should be huge democratic walkovers but steve very interesting result because i'll just reuse the same thing i said Anthony Brown, not Katie O'Malley, Curran, Katie Curran O'Malley from one side of the state to the other. In another race where I was wrong, you were right, not only did Brown win, but it wasn't even close. And I have to wonder, when you look in totality of the the results statewide, if we're just not seeing a a deepening of that shift, one, uh, you know, D.C.-based candidates, over Baltimore-based candidates? And mm-hmm. two, did we just see the end of the political viability of, 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 to use a point you made earlier, 
two more iconic last names in Maryland politics, those being Curran and O'Malley. Well, I don't know that Curran is as big of, I don't know if it's as commonly known a name as the O'Malley name. I think the O'Malley name, absolutely. Uh, this this is, is, I want to call it the end of the line for that name as any kind of power in this state. I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it wasn't only a, a, a dub posted by, by Anthony Brown. It, you know, it was a poster. <laughs> I mean, he, in, in basketball terms, he posterized <laughs> Katie Colonel O'Malley. And, you know, I think it's, you're right as far as the D.C. versus Baltimore, because Anthony Brown's home base is around the D.C. Beltway, Prince George's County. You know, he was a you know, member of Congress representing that area. And I think that is a, a the continuation of a shift, you know, as you, you know, you and I are both old enough to remember that Baltimore city was the farm system for whoever was going to be the next governor of Maryland. I think that got broken up by you know, Paris Glendening, but then O'Malley came back in. So um, I, I think that absolutely it, it shows where the power has shifted, mostly because of where the population has shifted. Um, and I, I think that that, that is the end of the road there. Um, because really neither one of them represent any sort of radical change. I mean, Anthony Brown's been around for a while, lieutenant governor, member of Congress. So it's not like he, you can't compare him to a Wes Moore, for example. But um, I, I think it was more about his strength around the D.C. burbs and the O'Malley name that just does not carry, no, does it not carry weight? It might now be an anchor. So that, that's really my take. I agree with you, Bill. Yeah, uh, you know, both of them would have been a very a fine attorney general, uh, yeah. and and you know, and I think uh, Anthony Brown will be. Um, yep. You know, I, I really don't have any. I mean, this race was a little bit, you know, starker in tone and a little bit meaner than the next race we're going to talk about. But um, yep. I I would agree. I mean, it's it's hard to see where the O'Malley brand has currency. I mean, yeah. there's still a little bit of chatter out there about an O'Malley for Senate run. Should Ben Cardin step down when he's yeah, up that. for election? Uh, but I've also heard Angela also Brooks is looking at that race. And I got five people for Senate if Ben Cardin steps down, and not one of them is named O'Malley. Well, <laughs> okay. and then you have Jamie Raskin, who yes. I think, you know, has been has become – emerged as a legitimate superstar with what he's yep. done in January 6th and his his uh, his horse oration skills are quite strong um, and and I'm sure there would be others and that, which is a Sarbanes who just got redistricted out of his home district <laughs> Don Sarbanes you know would be a candidate to, to succeed his father I'm not sure if that he was does. Paul seed or not uh, or did did uh, yeah. Does Cardin have the Mikulski seat? Yes, right? Yes. No, no. Yes. He, yeah, he does. No, Cardin has the no, Sarbanes Van seat. Came. Van yeah, Hollen right. has the Mikulski seat. Exactly. He came so, out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that would be prime for John Sarbanes to run to have his father's seat. Yep. So there you go. There's already, like, what would we just mention? Three or four more people yeah. over, over the former governor. Right. So, and meanwhile, in the controller's race, not a lot of a big shock. Brooke Learman, yeah. 
you know, beat beat Tim Adams quite handily. I think the, yep. the margin was a little bit closer towards Adams than I thought it would be, which was I thought was good because Tim Adams, by all accounts, seemed like a decent guy uh, yep. who was running a good campaign, you know, and, and maybe had the, the, you know, with the let's roll with Tim ads, maybe had the most the, the, the most fun. Uh, yep. And maybe most memorable ads of, of the election yep. campaign. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, not enough people knew who he was or what he wanted to do. And as we've said for months now, I mean, Brooke Learon has been running this very professional, high quality, high class, you yep. know, gubernatorial level style campaign for ages. And that hard work really paid off. Yeah, Brooke Learman started out with an advantage because she at least had some name rec you know, from her time you know, in Annapolis, et cetera. And what I will say about Brooke Learman is, you know, you have an advantage, you roll with it, pardon the pun for Mr. Adams, but you just do. And Brooke Learman had the edge going into it, and she never let her foot off the gas. And you're right, that was, I will still say, and I said it before on this show, the best run campaign I saw. It was on point, professional to your point. It, it if you want to know how to get it done, you know, look at that campaign or talk to the people around that campaign. I mean, I'm even hearing rumors that um, I saw I think, on, on Barry's site that that there's talk that the Moore campaign is trying to get a hold of some of the Learman people to help with their fall campaign. Uh, that that is a sign to me of respect. So uh, yeah, she she got it done. She did it the right way. It was a good campaign between the two of them. I hope there is a next act for Tim Adams because a uh, smart guy, by all accounts, good guy who certainly should be you know in the mix for something down the road. I don't know what it is, but uh, he, he's a guy that needs to stay around and stay in the game because people like that are definitely needed. Well, I'll, I'll put a thing out there. I mean, I don't know when it next comes up, but why not Tim Adams for state treasurer? Why not? Why not? It's right, right in his wheelhouse. Yeah. So, so, so there's that. So, so could not agree more on all, on all counts. So let's look at a couple of the local races uh, mm -hmm. near and dear to our heart. First, we, mm -hmm. we turn to the Southwest. <laughs> that was me turning to the Southwest, Steve. And we Good look turn. at our, our fair friends in Montgomery County who, uh, you know, they, they perhaps in Mark Irich have the most non-conventional county executive in, uh, in, uh, in, in uh, the state of Maryland. He's, he's kind of like the George the Animal Steel of, Howard, of, of county executives. He's unpredictable. He could do whatever. But he wants what's mine. He wants mine. And and he ran for re-election in a in a very unfunded, not we'll even say underfunded, unfunded yeah. way. Right. And mm -hmm. it was maybe as grassrootsy as a grassroots campaign as you get. Yeah. And business interests in, in Montgomery County put forth David Blair, uh, Montgomery County businessman, as their candidate, very well funded, very professional campaign. And by yesterday, by a margin of, I think, about 40 votes, it looks like Mark Irich has retained uh, the Democratic nomination to be county executive for re-election. 
and is the overwhelming favorite to win re-election in the fall. You know, and Steve, I mean, looking at, you know, looking at this race and looking at other, um, you know, county executive races in the state and, you know, certainly thinking about the recent Baltimore City mayoral election and, and that primary, um, you know, this was, you know, you see so many of these people who say, I'm going to run a different way. And that's always code for like, I don't have the money or I don't believe in the media or I just can't, you know, compete with the resources. Right. But Irish did all of those things, didn't compete for resources, never claimed to be able to raise as much money and still won. Yeah. Is that not cool? That, that, you know what, that is cool. And, and we have a candidate, I know we're going to talk about a, a council race that we, we have a member of the council who's the exact same person who I think has, looks like they're going to win their second straight term by raising like a dollar 98. So no, I think it's way cool. I, I think it is, I think it is way cool that you have somebody that just says, you know what, I, I'm not, a, I'm not out there waving signs. I'm not out there, you know, press of the flesh. I'm not out there dollar for dollars. I'm just going to be me and let the chips fall where they may. I, I am mad at you. Um, uh, what I would say about the Montgomery County race is, you know, it, it is what we all feared when the, when our soon to be former governor vetoed the law that would have allowed for accounting of mail-in ballots. And while you had to have what, two or three canvases and all this other nonsense before we knew who the winner was. Cause you know, had, had he signed that bill, we would have known this a long time before now because the early, the early, you know, mail-in votes would have been counted already. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing I'm starting to see online in, on my social media feed is uh, this is a, this is a reason why we should have some things like ranked choice voting, um, which has been out there for a while, which I, I don't, necessarily think is a bad idea um uh, you know know, i've also talked about open primaries but that's a whole different show um but uh you know an election that close where it looks like neither candidate is going to hit 50 you know this is where you know you start talking ranked choice voting um so it, it it was a mess it was a mess because of quite frankly larry hogan's veto uh because you had to have these canvases post primary day. Um, but again, those are different topics. But yes, um, much love to a candidate that says, you know what, forget traditional fundraising, tra- forget, you know, CEFs and all this other stuff. I'm just going to get out there and, and hit the streets and see where it falls. So good looking out, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love it. And I'm not, you know, I am not making any statement about ideology or liberal versus moderate or anything i just enjoy the fact that in this day and age you know you can just simply do your work you know do your job you know Mm -hmm. get the word of mouth out and you can still win on a county-wide level it should be a lesson (laughs) that we bring home to howard county to wit or it's good to know it can be done (laughs) or maybe as i should say to half wit uh, because there certainly were some half wits involved. 
Uh, but Steve, two two uh, uh, two types of races of local yep. import here in the county of Howard that I want to bring up. First off, there were the uh, challenges to the incumbent uh, council members in District One and District Four on the Democratic side, both of yep. which failed. Uh, yep. Jansen Evelyn, who I mentioned, who ran in District Four, who is by far the better challenger candidate of the two and certainly ran a uh, campaign based on, I believe, stronger and higher moral values than the other person, um, you know, came up short. Uh, also, I believe less than 100 votes uh, against uh, council member Deb Young from uh, in District 4. Uh, Young had been a, a, an, a frequent critic of the current county executive, Calvin Ball's uh, development policies. And in District 1, Naveen Kurtam, she of the many signs, she of the broadcast ads at Meriwether Post Pavilion, which break several rules, if not laws, um, and Meriwether Post Pavilion and the people who run it and operate it ought, ought to be ashamed of themselves, but they have no shame, so that just went nowhere. Uh, for running her ads and displaying her signs, um, you know, got got throttled by Councilmember Liz Walsh, who, as you stated, Steve, so aptly raised, you know, maybe a buck ninety-eight uh, for her reelection, and she's going to go off to an easy victory against Republican nutball du jour Sean McCurdy in District One. Uh, as as Deb Young will will no doubt emerge victorious in District Four, uh, so this was a fairly, you know, um, this is a fairly stern repudiation of what I had said for months was an asinine strategy to challenge these two incumbent county council members uh, instead of simply listening. To the, to the will of the electorate and simply not going to bed so much with the development community in terms of how projects are funded, in terms of how development projects are structured, uh, in terms of actually putting some teeth and more than lip service behind pledges for affordable housing, uh, reducing development density, um, the electorate is not as pro-density, uh, as pro-development as the administration is. I will maybe go out on a limb and say that as a whole, Howard County's electorate would like to have development. It's certainly not no development. It's certainly not anti-development, but it is about targeted and measured and fair development. Uh, and I believe that these election results emphasize that point. What's your take? Well, I'm going to disagree with you slightly, Bill, or maybe not so slightly. And, and the one thing I want to do is separate these two races, because I think there's a lot of people who said effectively what you said is that Walsh and Young beat back these development, business-funded, driven candidates. And that's not the case between the two. Jansen's, I had him winning and winning easily, and 
I was dead bang wrong, but there was nothing I saw in District 4 that indicated that Deb Young could hold on to her seat, even by the margin she did. And oh, by the way, for all you folks out there who want to you know, do a little Enzo dance over Ms. Young, a majority of the voters in her district voted to send her home. She did not hit 50. She barely, she may have hit 49, I think it was 48 point something. So let's think about that. A majority of the voters in District 4 did not want Deb Young. So let, let's just keep it real here. Um, and if you look at his fundraising, yes, he had a lot of support from certain interests because they liked him and they thought that he was a better alternative. But you know, I just remember back when he, he had his eye-popping number in January, like 51K, 90% of that was from small donors. He could have went CEF and had like 100 large in the bank. So this was not some corporate-funded, developer-funded campaign and I, I hope there's a second act for this guy because he seems to be to be a good guy, smart guy. I think he had a good message. Um, he did have that message for smarter growth. And um, as opposed to, you know, you say that the voters voted for smarter growth. Deb Young and Liz Walsh don't stand for smarter growth. They stand for shutting it down. You know, maybe they're maybe they the voters felt like, well, we'd rather have that than people who want to build it everywhere. But that wasn't Jansen's. So I want to separate those two races. Um, and you're right. She barely hung, Deb Young barely hung on. I don't think she'll see it that way. She'll say, hey, they threw everything at me and I won anyway. But I, I want to break those down. Now, as far as Kurtom, in my mind, she was done when her January number came out. She raised 41K. And some of the names I saw on the list, I'm like, yeah, you're done here. That's why I had Walsh favored. I had it a closer race than it was. Um, but I, I think I had always said, Liz Walsh, if nothing else, lends voice to a significant constituency in her district. People in Elkridge, people in Ellicott City, um, she speaks for them. I've talked to those folks, and they, as you know, we love our wrestling, they smell what she's cooking. Okay. So I was not surprised at the Walsh result, maybe surprised at the margin. I was very surprised at District 4. So I really want to separate those two out. I hope that Jansen's has another act, maybe even a rematch, because I think there was I think Deb Young benefited from the smaller electorate that I talked about earlier. And I think that there might be people in District 4 who saw Deb Young as comfort food. She looks like their neighbor they've had since the 1970s. And Jansen's is kind of this new thing and maybe a little bit scary because he represented change on a number of levels that I won't go into. But I I hope he has another act that he, because I think he has a future. I think Kurtom maybe does, maybe doesn't. I, I think that if you talk to her, there's a lot more there than what was appeared on the surface. But I think it got blown up when she made the decision to take a whole lot of money from a whole lot of people who a whole lot of other people in the county don't think very fondly of. I think that that campaign was one of a number of strategic blunders, starting with the fact that they said yes to money and support from the type of people who you don't want their names on your finance reports. So that, that's the one thing I would say. Uh, and, and you're right. I think we're going to get you – know, Deb Young is unopposed in the general election. I think Liz Walsh will win. Uh, the one thing that concerns me is you, know, you and I and Jason talked uh, before about the mess that is the county council. I don't know if it's going to get any better because you are now going to have emboldened it emboldened Liz Walsh, and I am mad at her because she won and won big. 
and an emboldened Deb Young, who's not going to look at the fact that more voters didn't want her than did. She's going to say, hey, I won. And let the games begin and let the talk of 2026 county executive, where there will be, no matter what, an open Democratic seat. Let that talk begin, folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride, as they say in Harry Potter. So, so I listened very carefully through all of that for the part in which you disagree. And I didn't hear it, <laughs> except I heard one thing. Well, I heard you may mention that Walsh and Young want to shut all development down in Howard County. That's not my belief. The simple fact of the matter is they've never had the ability to, to get anything their way. And it is not partisan to blast and to hold accountable this county executive who's a long-term friend of mine for going to the damn head of the Trump campaign in Howard County, a low quality, horribly disqualified professional realtor who has poor ethics, poor morals, poor standards, and by all accounts, you know, he's a nice guy and a good dad, but there's no reason why David Youngman is a member of the Howard County Council, other than that he lives out in District 5. Why our Democratic County Executive relies upon him for that third vote on development issues, in addition to Christiana Rigby and Opal Jones, befuddles me. It only... The only possible logic I can see is that the development community loves to fund all three of those folks, loves to fund our county executive, and so there's the majority. And I don't understand, and I never will understand, why our progressive friends are not up in arms about why do you need to rely upon this man's vote? The Republicans in Howard County or the state of Maryland, Steve, we've spent most of the last 45 minutes talking about how crazy they are. And thank God we have, because <laughs> if they had power, they would shaft the Democrats every possible step of the way. You rest assured a county executive Kittleman or a county council chair Youngman would not be given bone one to any Democrats. They didn't when they had control of county government. 30 years ago. They didn't. And so it's silly for us to, for us to, for us to, as Democrats, to be okay with the way the alignment plays out on the county council. That being said, we do continue to have three parties on the county council. And right, right. to your point about 2026, Liz Walsh just emerged as the leading candidate to replace Calvin Ball or Alan Kittleman in 2026. There's no two ways about it because she's had a four-year record and, and it will be an eight-year record of, as we just said, pick, you know, the, the electorate in District 1 picking up what she's putting down. And, and that's only going to bode well. I agree with you 100% about every other thing that you said. I think Jansen is a wonderful guy, and I think he definitely has a future. Hopefully, he has set himself up as a successor. Um, not 100% sure. I agree that the little smattering of votes that Hank Boyd received 
uh, may have thrown the election. I wasn't sure if that was fully what you were saying or not. No, it definitely not. kept Deb Young away from getting 50%, but I kind of see that as an even breakdown, and so it probably was a push. But but for all intents and purposes, I think we're totally in alignment on this. Well, I guess my point, Bill, was just the there, there are others out there, and, and it felt like it was going that you were going there a little bit here of dumping, of, of kind of putting Jansen's and Naveen in the same bucket, and they are two different people who ran two different campaigns, and and, and so that that was my my point there was to sep. I think those two need to be separated out, and I think it is a popular opinion that the their two defeats were a repudiation. I think that would be appropriate in District One. I don't, I, I don't know what happened in District Four. I know I I called it wrong. I don't think it was development because that's just not a thing in District Four. I think maybe there were some other things going on. Uh, District One is easily explained, especially the blowout. District Four, I think there's a little more that needs to be looked at as to why um, Deb Young was able to you know edge edge out uh, chances in this race. So that was my only point. Was oh no no no. no 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 no. I mean, the county no. executive and all that dead dead right. And I'll, and I'll say this, Bill, just real quickly is, um, your point about the three parties of the council is correct. And I don't. And the fact that you know David Youngman is a tiebreaker vote just. We talked about this with Jason. It drives me nuts. And the four Democrats should be able to get into a room and have a conversation, and find find a middle ground or some ground that they can all agree on where they can get stuff done without counting on David Youngman one way or the other. They clearly are not, have not done that in four years. And I don't know that these results all, with all the be reelected will change that dynamic. So I think that is sad. So I think we're on point there. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh, it, it, you know, hey, look, a, hey, look, Hey, look, uh, I, I believe I have been told that, that my brand when I love that term is, <laughs> truth teller and you know manure spreads evenly and in yep. the first in the first district it's its name was Kurtam. in the fifth district its name is youngman but it's spread all over and the other point i'll make is that district four typically generates more fantastic candidates for whatever race we saw that in school board we've seen yep. that before in state legislative races we've seen it in county council races then there are seats. Definitely more people run in that part of Columbia who are deserving and worthy of running and of serving in office than there are available positions. Jansen Evelyn is, is clearly one of those. I will not say that about the, the lady who ran in District 1, but he certainly is a very high quality individual who I hope has, has a very bright future and great things ahead of him. And, uh, you know, you know, and 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 we hear from again, and you know, um, in years to come. So I'm gonna yeah. not get so romantic about that, and that was romantic, and talk. Was and I guess we'll end up with the wonderful Howard County Board of Education race, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, Steve, we've been around this for twenty some odd years. Yep. The Democrat, the, the 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 school board race is nonpartisan. <laughs> okay. And so, who do we wind up with? Dan Newberger and Jackie McCoy, 
who were supported by the Democratic establishment versus Lin Feng Chen and Tudy Adler, who were supported by the Republican establishment. Yep. But it's nonpartisan. Will, will we ever in this county come to grips with the fact that even though we want to say it, it's not true? Um, probably not. And I will say this again, going back in, in a little bit of recent history, I go back to the 2020 campaign in District 1 and Matt Moyet, and I give Matt credit for saying the quiet part out loud. He said, I'm the only Democrat running in, in this school board race. He said it. He meant it. He ran on that platform. And I ain't mad at you, Matt, because you basically just, you know, rip, rip the whole veil. You, you broke down that whole you know, house of cards and said, you know what, it is partisan and I am one. And and Matt, I, I am mad at you. I give you nothing but respect for just coming out and freaking saying it. You know, when you have two candidates who are backed by every Democratic club, establishment, organization in the county, and you have two who are backed by every Republican club, organization, whatever in the county, yes. That's exactly what you have. You know, you don't have, you know, Meg Ricks, who went out of her way to say, I am running as an independent person. I'm affiliated with nothing. Uh, or a Julie Hotop, who said the same thing. Um, you, you have the partisans. And the interesting thing about the, the primary numbers is Howard County being Howard County, uh, McCoy and Newberger got, they were the two top vote getters. And that is reflective of the breakdown in terms of political ideology. Now, what I will say for the fall, I think that trend will continue because if you throw independence into the mix, I think Chen has a chance to pull some independence and maybe that gets him into the mix. Adler is, you want to talk about people who will stand next to Dan Cox? Tootie Adler will stand next to Dan Cox in a minute. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, so, I bet you she has already. So she she will be all in for 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 you know January sixth Dan. So I, I think that her chances of being in the top two uh, they ain't happening because you got to pull again that inside straight and no independent Republican leaning or Democrat leaning is going to look at Tootie Adler and say oh yeah she's a safe pick uh, negative. So I think it's a three person race. I, I think the whole partisan, nonpartisan thing, we may as well just get rid of the dang thing. I mean, we have states' attorneys' races and register of wills races and sheriff races that are partisan, but Board of Ed is non. Uh, uh, Bill, I won't say anymore because you said it all and I agree. It, it's nuts. You know, thank you for bringing up. And I did actually, as you were thinking, as you were speaking, think of manure in District 4. And there certainly was a Board of Education candidate in District 4. And I shall not mention his name, but he certainly was manure in District 4. Anyway, oh, we don't. Oh, yes, yeah. we do. <laughs> uh, uh, but but you, I thank you for mentioning about the independent candidates. I mean, you know, we've talked before about strategy and about communication, you know, and people wanting to do things differently. Here are people in Hotop and Rex, and I admit I, I voted for Meg Rex. Yep. You know, 
I want to do things differently. I'm not connected to politics. I'm not part of the political system. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for schools, parent activist, and all the like. And nope. I mean, that's sad. Yeah. But that's exactly what happens. So as consternated as the activist community gets, the school act, the education activist community gets about all the politicalization of the school board and blah, 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 it still happens. So, you know, and I agree with you, you know, there are some of these races in a future show. I hope to have our register of wills, Byron McFarlane on to talk about his desire to do away with the whole judge of the orphans court thing yeah. Yeah. Uh, statewide, which I think has a lot of merit, but, yep. you know, and maybe there's a Democrat or Republican way to be the uh, state's attorney, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, cases, especially when, the, well, you know, but even still now with Maryland not being a capital punishment state again, is there? Uh, yeah. But is there a Democrat or Republican way to be the clerk of the court? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but it certainly does seem that there's a Democrat or a Republican way now to be a school board member. And maybe, yeah. you know, maybe that's a crazy idea whose time has come. Maybe, because it, it certainly is. Uh, if anybody still believes that it's not partisan, I I got nothing for you because it, it clearly is. And, and oh, by the way, don't forget about certain interest groups that lean one way or the other, like our teachers union, who you look at the candidates that they endorse, they slap a little, you know, Apple stamp on them. I, I believe it was, you know, McCoy and Newberger. I mean, so it, it, it really is, you know, it, you know, it is getting as tribal as anything else. You look at the issues that the candidates talk about, they are talking points straight out of, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, um, you could close your eyes and Newberger McCoy speaking, you could hear Jones or Rigby or Ball, you know, you, you, you close your eyes and listen to Adler or Chen, you could hear, you know, um, you know, you could hear Dan Cox, you could hear Larry Hogan, you could hear Alan Kittleman, you, you know, you know, it's not like there's some, that, that's why when you say, oh, it's just a, if you're a candidate now and you have all those talking points, you say, but I'm just here about the kids or I'm a voice for the parents. It's like, no, you're carrying somebody else's water. So just say that you are. Right. It all becomes some form of code. Exactly. Yes, sir. So, well, Steve, we have reached the end of another fine podcast yep. production. Uh, I'm here to let everybody know in viewer and listener land that we are now at episode 198 and uh, we have, we have not yet decided our subject matter for 199. We're going to do that in a few minutes, but for episode 200, we will feature a, 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 a robust conversation. There's the word, Steve, robust featuring <laughs> our good friend, Jason Boom. So, It'll be a three-way dance for our E200 of Forward Maryland, and you won't want to miss it. Steve, any last words? No. Uh, you know, our, I don't know if it's our long national nightmare, but it was one hell of a long primary season uh, thanks to the extensions and everything. 
onward to November. It's going to be fun. And with that, yeah. with that wisdom, we're out. And these guys. These guys. Hey, so do we go? I was there Friday night. So do we go for six in a row? Do we get six in a row today? I think so. I mean, this team, this team's feeling it right now. They really are. I don't how I don't know why I don't know, but I'm going to enjoy it for as long as it lasts. Five games over 500 and one game out of the wild card, and still about about what about 55 games remaining. Uh, this 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 can happen. I'm feeling a why not vibe right now. I really am. Yeah, I mean, I mean, unless if the Orioles, you know, for some reason, I mean, to meet all of those predictions for the remainder that were the preseason predictions, the Orioles right. would have to go like 20 and 35 the rest of the way. And then that would be to get to 75 games, which I think people wanted, thought that we were to only win maybe, pardon me, 70 games. If yeah, that would feel under, yeah. So that's that's pretty good. I I I I think I think we've got some I think we got a good thing going. Not so much for the fans in DC with the Nationals who are at the bottom of every power ranking, but you know, hey, for for all the Nats fans out there who were looking up the uh, looking up I-95 and snickering. Aha. 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 And I like the Nats too, but yeah, aha. Juan Soto looks good in brown and yellow. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> why, why, why do I have to invite that? Why do I have to invite the negativity? I don't, I, I don't know, but I am happy for Trey Mancini. Hopefully, he so yeah, am he I. So here. am I. <laughs> Orioles made some. Orioles made some good trades there, and hopefully, the Nationals did too. You know, they, they got, got a lot. They got, they got, they got, yeah, they got a lot for those two guys for Bell and Soto. So hopefully it'll be the start of a way up for them. I would love to see a 90, another 95 World Series, except not yeah. Baltimore and Philly, but Baltimore and yeah. DC. That would be bold. Yes, sir. All right. Well, we hope you have a great time out there for your Sunday. Stay cool, stay safe, and we'll be back at you next weekend with another edition of Forward Maryland. For Steve, I'm Bill. Have a great weekend, everybody. The Radio Voice returns. Take care.